0: I am Dr. Robin Roth. And I'm Dr. Adrienne Rosenthal. Together, we are The Booby Docs, our Instagram account where we talk about breast health in an approachable and educational way.
1: We are both fellowship-trained breast radiologists who have been best friends since day one of med school. We work together, we mom together, and now we podcast together. This is The Booby Docs, the girlfriend's guide to breast cancer, breast health, and beyond.
0: In this podcast, we attempt to bridge the gap between doctor and patient while having some fun along the way all in around 30 minutes or less. So without further ado, let's be Breasties. Nailed it.
1: (laughs) This podcast is not intended for medical advice. Please contact your doctor with any symptoms or concerns that you may be having. Thank you and enjoy the show. So this is Dr. Jeremy McFargin. What's up people? He is a board certified plastic surgeon based in Long Island in Manhattan, specializing in emergency and cosmetic plastic surgery, and the founder and owner of New York Plastic Surgery, where you are currently serving as the youngest private practice owner in Long Island. Can we get a horn for that? (laughs) That is a huge accomplishment. It is a jungle out there.
2: I missed you guys, and you guys are awesome. I've been following you guys, you've blown up. I think you're what I love is how intense you are in your clinical lives you match in the levity of like social media I, I think it's an art form it really is thank you so much and
0: thank you man. know us back when right like we all went to med school together
2: we were we were like in the trenches
0: together did, did, was that your orientation leader
2: i think you were <laughs> you that's like were. the ra of college <laughs> you know, I, I, I tried to act like I was like probably a third year or like someone senior in school. I was I was a nobody, but I was a guy. I'm like, yeah, I know you guys, pop collar.
0: You know? I, oh, yeah. How now I remember. we all, all, all had the same cool. short white yeah. coat. I feel like I remember you on the, on the orientation cruise with your hot pink, hot, like pop collar. Pop,
2: I remember I, I, that too. The Abercrombie shirt. Yeah. Did you double I remember her? that. Oh, my God. I still may have it.
1: <laughs> I love a man who can pull off a bold pink. Yeah.
2: What, what can I lose? Look, you know? And
1: look at you now. <laughs> <laughs> when was the last time we saw each other?
2: It was definitely was it- before my graduation.
1: It's been
0: about 15 years since we last saw you when we graduated from med school.
2: I have, I have been. I have clearly aged like way more than you guys have. <laughs> way wow. more. You, you, know, you know the 10-year <laughs> challenge people are doing? My, uh-huh. Mine is like horrific. <laughs> like, it's so bad for a plastic surgeon It's terrible
0: but look what you've done in your 15 years since you've graduated from med school well, I, fill I, I us tell, in what you've been up
2: to i tell people i've aged literally like i've aged 20 years in 10 years you know because yeah surgical training you know you guys know how it is marriage kids setting up a new life and the interesting thing about training is no one teaches you about the next step especially in practice. Like I find mm-hmm. the gap between residency and practice to be much bigger than like undergrad to med school or med school residency. And I think Agreed. it's so underappreciated, you know, but um, I, I basically graduated from the, the Albert Einstein Montefiore program. I uh, went on to uh, straight into private practice. I was married at the time. I had three kids going on four. I went right into practice And I actually, before I went into practice, I consulted like everybody. I thought I was going to apply to fellowships. I thought I was going to apply to aesthetics. I didn't want to do the other specialties of plastic surgery, which are like hand or microsurgery, because I felt comfortable enough to kind of practice. And I remember I was consulting everyone. And most of the people I talked to, they're like, Jeremy, it's about personality. You have the skills. You know where you're going to live. Just go out there and do it. And Mm -hmm. when I heard heard our chief of plastic surgery, and you know the way it is, like your chiefs mold you when you're coming out fresh, you know? One day he was like, Jeremy, just stop contemplating and get the hell out there and go do it. And I was like, you know what? I'm in. Nice. The lasting words my chief told me was that your first two to three years are your real fellowship. That's Mm -hmm. what you really... When you see your name at the top of the chart and you take your first patient to the operating room, that is kind of where you will make yourself. And that has never, ever, I, I haven't stopped. That, mm-hmm. that mindset and those words have not left me at all. My, right. my first operation to today, I'm much more relaxed, but I still have in the back of my head, like all of those pearls and wisdoms and things that kind of impart on you, it still rings in my head. So it works. So basically, I I went to private practice in Long Island, Manhattan. I I joined a group about two or three years into the group. I kind of realized that I wanted to do things the way I want to do my own kind of fashion. I think what happens to young surgeons is you gain comfort in surgery. You gain comfort in managing your life, basically. And then it comes the step of what are you going to do the next 40 years? So for me, uh, I, I was married to the region. I wasn't going to really move anywhere. And I realized that I kind of wanted to practice the way I really believed in. And believe it or not, it was like the Einstein way. I'm like, every patient, same service, doesn't matter the demographic, doesn't matter the age, I literally will do trauma call, do cosmetic surgery, and I will still take care of like children or adults together. Because it's it's something the way I wanted to do it. And I didn't want to just, you know, develop a micro niche in something so early. And I don't want to give it up. So I kind of did my own thing. And Thankfully, over the course of the past couple of years, we've blown up like our volume's up 8X and we're doing more surgery and we're trying to bring more surgery in-house to our own ORs. It's becoming more of a production, which is fun, but comes with business stress, you know, good stress, as I say.
0: So we wanted to focus a little bit, on, you know, obviously on the breast cancer side of it. Yeah. So can you tell us about the main reconstructive options for patients who've undergone
2: mastectomy? Sure. So they've changed a lot. Now, it used to be that women who had mastectomy, there are almost no options. And then over time the evolution occurred where there are basically two major categories for reconstruction. One is eventually getting to a breast implant. So from tissue expander as a temporary process to an implant. And the second one I think has changed much faster with more options, which is using your own tissue to form new, new breasts and new contour. Now, what's changed over this time period is, you know, materials have changed, techniques have changed, awareness has changed. But I think most importantly, two big changes occurred, which were insurance mandatory coverage for breast reconstruction. It, it's almost as if- That's awesome. It, 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 it is. It's huge, legislation, it, it, it guides change. So basically what happened was, we used to look at breast reconstruction as not mandatory. The, the oncology part of it, removing the, the cancer is. But the reconstruction was, eh, you know, that's cosmetic, which is really the, the nature of what plastic surgeons have to fight all the time. And the and over time, legislation occurred where we now, uh, women are now obligated or at least are entitled to full rights of breast reconstruction, which I think was a huge, huge win. And that stimulated more innovation. So basically, tissue expanders and the and the implant-based route, all all this begins in the operating room at the time of mastectomy, right? A woman, God forbid, is diagnosed with breast cancer, and you guys know this better than I do because you guys make the diagnoses. They get referred to an oncologist. The oncologist gives them the plan. They go to a breast oncology surgeon who talks about, hey, we're going to remove your breast tissue with an impl- with a nipple or without a nipple, and then they consult a plastic surgeon who specializes in reconstruction. So someone like me would meet with the patient and say, okay, um, we have two major options. We can use your own tissue or we can use an implant to reconstruct you. And I think the breakdown really, I can get into the nitrates of this, which I love to do, but it really breaks down to like half and half, right? Half of patients want the implant based route and the other half want the tissue-based route for many reasons. In the implant-based route, we're in the operating room, and once the oncologists have removed the breast tissue, we walk in and literally what you see it's – its I always try to paint this picture of patients because I think it's important to understand the challenges, right? We walk into an operating room we see mm-hmm. skin this thin, paper thin. We see a muscle that's equally thin, and we have to build something from nothing that exists. Wow. So women think, oh – A lot of women think that they're getting a, they say, oh my God, I'm getting a free boob job. And I always laugh it off. Listen, I like being the joking guy, but when it comes to surgery, it's our job to explain the realistic expectation of surgery and what it takes to get there, right? So in a a sort of half, you know, fun way, but in a serious way to try to explain, listen, for us to rebuild a breast, we got to start from scratch. So we start with an expander. We measure the, literally the width of the chest. Take a ruler, measure width, we put in something called an expander, and we literally inflate the expander in the operating room.
1: But so an inflate, um, an expander is kind of like a modified implant that you can inflate and, and deflate more
2: easily than yeah. a standard yeah. Pe- implant. People think it's a water balloon. It's not really water balloon. Mm-hmm. It's basically an implant where one side is flat and the other side is a balloon that expands outwards. So the flat side goes against the ribs, right? The the, the top side inflates, and mm-hmm. as you inflate it, it balloons up. Keep in mind how important it is to orient it. The orientation of it means everything because we have to orient it before we inflate it. So we have to figure out in our minds where we want the breast to ultimately be before we actually make it. So you have to have sort of like a 3D brain to figure out how to make that happen.
0: So the tissue expander is temporary, right, yeah. to, to to expand the chest wall to then place the implant, Yeah, correct? so the,
2: it's, a, it's a temporary. We put it in, we close the breast, we expand it up, and we leave it in for about three to six months usually.
0: Okay, and then at that point, then you switch to an implant if you're going to do that. And how do you choose, what are the differences between silicone and saline implants? Oh, that's
2: that's my life. That's like my heart over here. You know that. Even uh-huh. in the cosmetic uh-huh. realm, that's my life. So, Tell us the mm-hmm. wise one. Oh, my God! <laughs> so the, once again, a lot has changed. It used to be back in like the 90s, 80s, etc. before even the moratorium, that this silicone-based implants used to have a thin shell, and there, it was like literally like an ooze of a material. It was liquid, mm-hmm. right? So we have silicone implants that are more of like a squishy material, like a gel material, and then we have saline implants, which are water-saline-filled with a shell of silicone, right? These are the two major types of implants. Now, over time, what changed is that silicone really won the race of how good it became. We developed something called gummy bear implants. Gummy bears are my mm. life, right? Delicious. I, they're my.
1: I saw this on your page. You, you're a big fan of the gummy bear. I,
2: I like the gummy bears <laughs> because they're so resilient. I, I should have even brought one here. You can twist it, you can stretch it, wow. you can squeeze it, you can do whatever you want, it doesn't break. But when you let go of it, it holds the shape of the breast. So oh. the material is strong enough to hold form and shape, but it's soft enough to be moldable, which is a very rare thing to kind of create. It took time to do that. And the <laughs> shell is soft enough to feel like a real breast. You know. So to uh-huh. me, that's the best quality implant that exists. And then the other side of it, the saline, I rarely, I I rarely put it in saline, maybe less than five percent of the time, and it's really upon patient request, and they really have to want it because saline can ripple, which I can explain what that means in a moment. Well,
1: tell tell us about rippling because I think that's an interesting phenomenon that people don't necessarily know about unless they have implants or about to get implants.
2: Right. So rippling is remember a saline implant is a water fluid filled implant. So when you stand versus when you lay down water will move within this implant. You won't notice it, but it can be noticed. So what happens over time is that the soft tissues of the chest thin just a little bit. And with a salient implant, you can see the skin of the implant ripple. Mm-hmm. It doesn't look like a uniform filled implant. It has a little bit of like of like wrinkly skin almost. And that is something, and you, know, you see it, especially in the midline of the cleavage. This is a telltale sign. Woman wants to wear a dress, they're self-conscious because they're like, Doc, everyone can see my implants. That's Mm. rippling at its best. Now, we can fix rippling by changing to a a silicone or what I like to do in combination is inject fat. It camouflages and creates a natural plant and it's gorgeous. But Mm. the idea behind it is that saline carries this risk that really silicone doesn't so much. So we mm-hmm. go through this elaborate long process of explaining the differences between both. And the beauty is we're kind of out of the cancer talk. So now women have that comfort and that sort of like luxury of deciding, okay, now I can calm down and think about what implant do I like? What size do I like? Where do I want it to be? They can kind of pick and choose. It's, it's a nice part of the process. They're out of that stress and in the, in the forestry of, you know, chemo, radiation, cancer, cancer, they're out of that realm already, you know?
1: So how do you guide someone towards a silicone or saline implant versus uh, like a tram flap or deep flap procedure? Like what's the what's the decision tree for you?
2: Oh, it's, it's a lot of it's guided by what the patient sort of wants, so their considerations really matter a lot, but also are they anatomical candidates for this, right? So a deep flap taken from the abdomen disconnected by these tiny little delicate blood vessels that we dissect under a microscope and reattach in the chest. It's Or a tram flap, which is an older procedure where we take that tissue from the abdomen and we turn it into the breast attach on its muscle. There are newer procedures where we take it from the thighs, we take it from the buttock. Basically, the concept is we can disconnect tissue from one part of the body and reconstruct the breast with it, right? So it's amazing. It's it, that technology by far has surpassed everything else because the techniques have improved, the microscopes have gotten better, and the technique for dissecting with the microscopes has gotten much better. Like right?
0: the microvascular we read these like C T scans with the anatomic yes. planning
2: perforators. So I, I think that the imaging everything has become much better. The teams have become more efficient because market demands kind of make you better as a surgeon to operate more efficiently, right? But it's a much lengthier surgery than the implant-based ones. So the patient has to be sort of a little bit healthier, sometimes younger, but it's not really what it's about. They have to have enough tissue to harvest. So- You need some schmaltz. You need some schmaltz. So you guys <laughs> who are paper thin, you're, you're thin, you know, thin young doctors, you can have very little harvest, right? But women who have a little bit more meat on their bones are more like tummy tuck patients, right? They have enough to harvest to create a breast status. They, we, they, they kind of push it off as, you know, we can give you like a little mini tummy tuck while we do the surgery. It's different. So it's like a
0: mommy makeover, right? Like different what... than
2: it. But the idea kind of exists where we can hide that incision in the waistline and we can build the breast as well.
0: So, uh, you know, I wanted to go back. You actually mentioned this, that, um, you know, a, mastoc- a mastectomy is not a free boob job. So how does, an Im- how does a mastectomy with implant reconstruction differ from like implants placed for cosmetic purposes? Oh, wow. So...
2: It's, it's interesting. It's interesting because the techniques to become what I think is a good cosmetic breast implant surgeon are in parallel with what it takes to become a good reconstructive surgeon. Pa- patients don't know this because what they're shopping for is the end product, which is an implant and breast dog, right? But they don't know that the surgeon has to have the same kind of skills to do both, right? So, the difference is that we both – I like to go – at least most of us like to go below the muscle in both examples, both for cosmetic and for reconstruction. The difference is above the muscle with a mastectomy, there's just skin. It's so thin. So you're dealing with very little soft tissue to cover your implant. In a mm-hmm. breast aug, or breast augmentation, you have some kind of breast tissue. It could be an A cup, B or C cup, whatever, to cover your implant. So the shaping becomes – I think, better and easier, the result Mm -hmm. becomes better, but here's where the kicker is. It's harder to make someone really symmetric in a breast dog than it is in a breast reconstruction. Because in a breast reconstruction, you can do it in multiple stages. Mm. In a breast augmentation, you got to do it in one shot, right? So So interesting. So someone like me who does, let's say both, but I I do tons of breast dogs that pocket, the space you create to put the implant in, that has to be perfect. That's the art mm-hmm. of the surgery. Enough to move like a, like a natural breast, but not too much for it to fall out of place. And I think that's where the art of the surgery really comes into place, you know?
1: Just shifting topics a little, what kind of maintenance do you recommend for a woman with implants? How often should they be changed out? What okay. what do you recommend for imaging surveillance to check for implant's integrity
2: or do you at all? Okay, so 100% yes. And a lot of patients even who have implants don't know this. We actually created a So the answer is about every 2 years you should be getting an MRI not to surveil the breast tissue as you guys know, but to surveil the implant and the pocket. And I'll explain to you why. And then after those two years, you should get an annual breast implant checkup. We've actually promoted this in in Long Island and New York City because women who get their breast implants put in, they think they're done. And they're like, oh, okay, I go about my life and live the way I want to. You need exams. Because if a patient develops a random discomfort years down the line or redness or just an MRI that they need anyway every two years... You can find something called a late seroma. It's fluid in the breast that you never knew existed, right? It's not common, but it can happen. Now, that fluid needs to be sampled. It's a very important thing. I actually had a patient like this two weeks ago who, on random MRI, on a random checkup, I found this. And I told wow. her, we have to know what this is. Because if you had an implant from X years ago, seven years ago, I have to know if this is something important or not, if it's if it's dangerous or not. But shelf life of implants don't exist anymore. They used to be every 10 years. It's, it's kind of like mm-hmm. an old wives' tale. Now mm-hmm. it's really – there's no shelf life because the integrity of the implant is better. The, it's more gel, gummy bearish, so it holds its shape better. So there is no real um, sort of benchmark. But they should-
1: so are you worried less about capsular contracture with the gummy bear implant? Did you like,
2: less, did you like less that, than that, was, that was hot. So fund of knowledge I just threw So in. capsule contracture, very important. Remember, every patient will develop some kind of a capsule on their implant. I tell this to patients, and they're like blown away by it. But I explain to them, mm-hmm. you have a farm piece of thing in your body. Your body is going to wall it off, and you'll never know it. It won't bother you. Who cares, right? But when it contracts, when it gets hard and pushes up and develops this where it doesn't move properly and stays pasted on your skin, it hurts. That's capsular contracture. So early capsular contracture, we can treat medically, we can treat it sometimes physically, but eventually capsular contracture, the capsule has to be removed, the implants to be removed, we have to wash with antibiotics and replace with an implant. So capsular contracture is important with those annual exams. It's part of the process if you have discomfort, if you feel like the implant's not moving properly, or you feel like Just tightness. We always say come in, even for your annual exam, come in. But yes, I like to get exams, but there is no rule. It's not like back in the day you had a 1% to 3% risk per year of capsule contracture after like two or three years. It doesn't exist anymore. It's different.
1: So interesting. And then you also touched based on the seroma and how that could potentially be dangerous. And from us, from an imaging perspective, you know what we're looking for. This like rare... um, Recently, textured breast implants have been associated with a a low but increased risk of lymphoma, right? So it's referred to as breast implant-associated anaplastic large cell lymphoma. It's exceedingly uncommon, but there is an increased risk. Um, So what do you tell patients who currently have textured breast implants and just implants that have been in for a while? How do you counsel them for that risk?
2: Okay, this is extremely important. It's one of the biggest changes we've had in the past couple of years. So we, as board-certified plastic surgeons, are now obligated to, in our consultations, have a thorough discussion with a patient regarding the specific risks of anaplastic large cell lymphoma. And it is, it's a growing entity, I think, more now in its ability to be diagnosed and to be sort of um, sort of, uh, worked up. And remember, I'll tell you, the numbers are all over the place. They believe the incidence, the, the you know, the this can happen from one in three thousand, which I think is not the case, to one in seventy thousand, but these are textured implants mostly studied, right? Of mm-hmm. a material called biocell, but textured implants. Now, by the grace of God, I've not put in textured implants because I every surgeon knows to put them in, they suck. They're hard to mo they're hard to maneuver, they're hard to move in, but there is a role for them somewhat. So there is this really big range of how common it is. Secondly, we've we as a society are putting in an average of about three hundred thousand breast implant augmentations a year, right? Wow, that's a lot. That's right, a huge number. Now that's not including breast reconstruction, and it's not including implant exchanges, right? If you add this number up over the course of ten years, that's like two to three million breast implants. Sorry, breast procedures times two two implants right a year the amount of cases diagnosed are 700 and like 30 so this is less than point zero I did the math once it was like less than point zero zero two percent of any implant placed it's extremely rare probably the risk of you getting some skin cancer is much higher right but the importance is that with these these MRIs if we find any fluid in that breast pocket, we have to sample it because that's the way we can diagnose an ALCL related issue. Now, if there's fluid and we find something ominous in that, like cells that don't look healthy, like you guys would know this, implant comes out, the whole capsule has to come out with with basically with lymph nodes. We treat it like almost like a cancer surgery. So what, what symptoms should
0: be people looking be looking for if they have textured breast implants that would worry, okay. alert them? First of
2: all, if you have textured implants, there's a recall on them. It's, oh, so it, get them taken out. It's like the tire of a car. It sounds crazy to okay. say this, but like if anyone's had a textured implant in their body, anywhere in the United States we recommend, come and take them out. We can okay. replace them or you can just take them out and we can just, you know, do a breast slip to make you a nice breast.
1: So does the FDA like reach out to these patients the way like Ford has reached out to me about my truck?
2: <laughs> I, I don't know the exact answer because we, they do put out like warnings and they do issue things. All patients get implant cards also. And I mm-hmm. believe that the patients who, uh, the surgeons who put in the implants, send letters out to their patients saying, Hey, there's a recall textured implants. Mm-hmm. Um, it's almost like a, it's medical record charting because remember HIPAA, doesn't make it easy for us to communicate well with patients across wow. um, providers. But they do reach out to the patients and let them know, hey, we recommend an exchange. Um, but the uh, the smooth implants, these are numbers that we don't know yet. And it's, it's extremely rare, like one in, I don't know, 80,000 plus. So those are the ones that I think are much more difficult to counsel patients on. But we do explain that the importance is get surveillance. You know, it, it, it really makes a big difference.
0: So tell us a little bit about breast implant disease. I feel like I've heard a lot about that recently with celebrities.
2: So breast implant related illness is something that we as a society and we as a specialty, it's, it's a growing topic in our conferences. But remember, there is no diagnosis for it. Meaning we have no diagnostic criteria to say, hey, you have this. Mm-hmm. I have patients come into my office and they listen, I have joint pain, I have headaches. I have back pains. I can't sleep by night. I get migraines. And a list of these symptoms kind of come up and they all say it happened after I got my implants. Now, right. when you see this pattern kind of arise as a surgeon, I don't, we don't dismiss them. We can't say, ah, it's nothing. This could be anything. Anyone can have any symptoms. It's nothing to do with the implants. If you take a portion of the population that has no implants, they'll have the same complaints at the same rate. Right. But, We also can't definitively diagnose this. I had a patient come in literally two weeks with the same exact thing. She's a yogi. She's like, Mm -hmm. like, does the implant hurt you? No. Do you feel like when you do your stretches that they constrict your movement? No. What's the problem? I get really bad headaches and I have joint pains and I feel like it triggers my migraines. And I can't tell them that, hey, it's a breast implant illness related issue. And we have to take out the implants. To me, that's an unresponsible thing for me to say because I have no evidence behind that. However, I would never dismiss her complaint. So in that scenario, I'd spend the patients, we have no way of validating this. So it becomes a patient sort of preference. If you want us to take it out, I'll be happy to take it out. I will always take a capsule out with the implant, which I think is very important to do no matter what, but it doesn't mean your symptoms will get better. Because we- How
1: long does it take for the capsule to form?
2: It's a great question. I would say okay. it's it's an art it's a it's an artsy question because there is no answer. I would say roughly in the beginning, three months, three to six months, mm. an immature capsule begins to form. It thickens, maybe by like a year, but I've seen patients happen really fast.
1: And is there a time frame that's more common to see implant sickness syndrome?
2: Really. After
1: patients I, get them,
2: I don't know the answer because. When, I, when we see our patients within the first year, I don't we don't get these complaints. It, it doesn't, they don't come in frequent enough after the first, you know, six months, for me to mm. be like, you know, that's when it starts happening. And even from historical points, remember, if I asked you, when did you first start experiencing migraines? They're gonna tell you 10 years, way before implants, but maybe it became more common afterwards. You know what I mean? Yeah. These are very vague, nondescript symptoms that we, and, and I explained to patients, a lot of people think that doctors dismiss these things because we don't, because we believe in concrete data-driven diagnoses, right? And I explained to patients, we're not dismissing it, but we can't validate it because it's nebulous today. Maybe sometime down the road, there'll be a better test or better way of doing this, but we can't say, hey, you have it and you don't have it. We should do an explant on you, but not on you. We, we don't have that very- ability.
1: Interesting. We had a conversation with one of my good friends, Dr. Sheila Nazarian, out in L.A., and we were talking about plant sickness syndrome. What? people.
2: people? Persian people.
1: And her hypothesis about the back pain was that you're now carrying a lot of weight on your chest that you didn't before, and your entire equilibrium is different. So to her, it wasn't even surprising that a certain percentage of women would start developing back pain after they got implants?
2: Uh, I mean, listen, it, it definitely can be a contributing factor. It, But once again, you have to pick the correct implant for the correct patient as well. Like if you go too large for someone's body size, it, will, it can cause back pain or shoulder grooving or pain or, you know, trapezius muscle sort of strain, like you're kind of shoulder shrugging. But mm-hmm. I don't know to what extent, do you know what I mean? This is becoming, I think this is becoming a social media sort of recognized issue where maybe there's a pocket of patients who have it and they are expressing it and there are patients who have vague symptoms with implants and they're saying, maybe I can have that too. You know what I mean? And we Mm -hmm. as surgeons, patients come into the office all the time and I tell them, "I, I, I don't know what to tell you. All I can tell you is that if you think the implant's causing it, I'm happy to remove it. I'm happy to do a lift and maybe a fat transfer to kind of restore your shape but I can't tell you it's gonna get better. Meaning I can't tell you I'm doing this only for symptomatic relief. It will be irresponsible for us to say that. And there are, by the way, as a society, we really shun and we really kind of like go against surgeons who use fear to make patients do surgery. So they tell patients, mm-hmm. if you keep this implant in, this will get a lot worse. They, mm-hmm. they do this, people advertise through mm-hmm. fear. You know. Don't leave that implant in; it's going to cause cancer. Don't mm-hmm. don't leave that implant; in, it's going to make your headache so much worse. Because there's no evidence to support this. They're just using it as a tactic to gain business, and I think that that is also equally wrong. You know what I mean?
1: Mm-hmm. Let's take it down a notch and talk about <laughs> breast reductions.
2: That's that's more. I'll throw right. it in horn. Did you like that segue? I love it. <laughs> Only you guys can <laughs> pull <not>. this off. <laughs>
1: so so we talked about building the breast up and and there's something else that's hugely covered by insurance i drive by it on the highway all the time yes your breast reduction could get covered by insurance so it's like the other side of the coin
2: it's one of the best kept secrets but but no longer a secret in this world i believe so this is something i'm very passionate about because i trained in the bronx right Women in the Bronx are literally three times the large, the largest cup size than, than the average other woman. So only women with large breasts understand the need for breast reduction. Women with smaller breasts and men absolutely don't get this. They think it's like slapping God in the face, right? <laughs> You're nuts. What are you doing to people? You're mutilating them. I'm like, you guys don't understand. Women with large breasts live with this every day. It's not just a breast problem. It's a life problem. So I love lifestyle and life-changing surgeries. I invest in it. I believe in it, right? So women with large breasts get back pain, neck pain, grooving in their shoulders from their bras, digging into their shoulders all day. They develop really big muscles because their shoulders shrug all day and night. They get rashing and sweating under their big breasts, and they can't find bras. They spend 300 bucks on their bras, which is out of control, and they have to wear different tops and bottoms, and what's crazy about it, the best story I ever had, one-third of my practice are nurses. And a lot of them kind of see what I do in the hospitals and my, my, my results. And they all come to us because they you know they know me and they trust me and they kind of like the results. One woman came and said to me, do you know what I do on my breaks? I go on my 15-minute break. I go into the break room. You guys know what this is like. I get a food tray. You guys know the food trays I have in the hospital?
1: Oh, my God. The don't... lights off.
2: I go to my food tray, I put my breasts on the food tray, and I go, "Ah!" Oh, and I just lie for <sighs> 15 minutes. And wow. all I said to myself was, if I can solve this problem, if this is just my role in life, it's a huge problem to fix because it's a permanent, Absolutely. Fix. It's a permanent fix, right? So what do we do? With a breast reduction, when I came to Long Island or I came to New York, and I don't want to sort of say anything different about my specialty, I felt like most surgeons focused on reduction and not on shape. They just want people to have smaller breasts, but they never look right. They looked mm-hmm. either too small or they had no cleavage, and they kind of like there was the finesse of plastic surgery wasn't there. It was just we completed the mission. Thank you so much, right? So when I came in, I want to be known for shape. I want to make sure women look really good, but they're not huge, right? So I spend a lot of time. <laughs> you guys on my Instagram. I I start calling you Dr. Shapeshifter.
1: (laughs) That's a good Instagram. I call myself
2: the boob boss, but I'll take that too. The the point is that we can reduce a breast, but we can make it look good at the same time. There's no reason why you can't have cleavage. There's no reason why you can't wear your dresses. You can't wear your bikinis. You can look really good, but with a better shape and a better size. And I think that's a game changer. And it's all covered by your insurance. To me, there's like a no brainer. Like it's... There's nothing else like do not pass go. Strictly it's the best deal that exists, I think.
0: What criteria do you need to like be in order to get a breast reduction covered by insurance?
2: Okay, so you gotta cri- call
1: my good friend Dr. Daniel Shane for the orthopedic consult. I need, I need uh, like a he,
2: list. I'm just he knows, curious. I just know. I send them a lot of these women have neck pain. A lot of them do. So when they come uh-huh. in, they go like this, like doc, I have to constantly adjust. I send them to Dr. Shane to make sure they have no cervical lordosis. I had a policewoman who came in with literally like a 42G breast, G. Wow. It was the size of like two of your heads, each breast. And I send him to him because she had a cervical fusion. She had neck surgery before she had a breast reduction, which is oh, the path people go down. They kind of lean over like the Tower of Pisa over time, you know? So it takes a huge strain on the body. But the criteria are back pain, neck pain, bra strap grooving that we have to document in photos. So we always take pictures. Mm-hmm. Rashing and sweating under the breast, which we also document, that women have tried shampoos, topical treatments, creams, lotions, mm-hmm. without any help because we know it's not going to work. Frankly, it's not true mm-hmm. won't help. And breasts that are above, let's say, a D-cup, D-cup or bigger. Mm-hmm. Um, those become criteria. But every patient's an individual. I do a lot of asymmetry cases. And mm-hmm. this is something that's hard to advertise. I did a lady this morning. One side… Was basically like a 38 double D, and the other side was a 38 C. Now, what we have to reduce both sides, sort of, but one side gets more of a lift, the other side gets more of an aggressive reduction, but it falls in the realm of reduction. So asymmetry kind of falls in the same category as well.
0: And often women will get a breast reduction at the time of their like lumpectomy surgery okay. for symmetry, like you oh, said. Oh, I,
2: I think that, that definitely, yes, especially a lumpectomy. We can kind of reconstruct the breast, and reducing it is the best way. Not just because it looks great and you get the shape; it reduces your risk of breast cancer. Mm-hmm. I tell us to my patients all the time: breast reduction. Is that
0: just because
1: you're getting rid of some breast tissue? Yeah, you're getting
2: rid of the probability of breast cancer. It's so interesting. Breast reduction um, lowers your risk of breast cancer.
1: Does it matter if it's subpec yes. or retroglandular? Like yes, if you're it putting it into the glandular tissue, I imagine you disrupt some ducts.
2: So the answer is yes. So if you, so I, I always go below muscle. However, back in the day, if you went through the areola, which we don't do, it, mm-hmm. but if you went through the areola and you went under the gland above the muscle, that can affect your ability to breastfeed. I, I, I don't know who does this still. I'm sure there are some mm-hmm. people, but nowadays, the more modern technique is in the fold of the breast <clears> under the muscle, <throat> clean, no bacteria, no ducts, nothing.
0: There you have it. There you, there you. All right. So, are there any minimally invasive options that women can do if they've breastfed three kids and their breasts aren't as perky as they used to be? <laughs> oh, wow. Asking for a friend, of course. So,
2: <laughs>
1: not me. <laughs> well, <With> other friends.
2: <laughs> well, I was telling the friends today, you got to make sure that the vault is closed. No more babies, right? Uh huh. Um, and it really depends on your anatomy. What happens with, you know, the warrior valor of having children and breastfeeding is the breasts droop a little bit, right? They engorge with feeding, they involute afterwards, and they droop a little bit. I think most women that have that issue after breastfeeding, they need some element of a lift, right? Either a lift alone or a lift with fat injection or Mm -hmm. a lift with an implant. It's one of those three, right? Um, If they have really, really big breasts and they've breastfed, they need some kind of a really good reduction hinted right Mm -hmm. so there but some element of the lift has to exist um all of our breast surgeries are all rapid recovery meaning within 24 hours you should get back to non-rigorous lifestyle so that's incredible back to you know why because the dissection techniques are better and we use an injectable material called expiral it's a three-day long-acting pain injection it changes everything we also do light anesthesia. We also give a lot of non nauseating inducing medications. The idea for elective surgery is to get you back on your feet fast, not to admit you to a hospital. So everything has changed to make it lighter and faster. Rapid recovery is what it's all about. So fascinating.
0: You know, I, we talked a lot about um, like all the reconstructive options, but you know, there is a third option, which is like going flat
2: after breast cancer surgery. So the, the, there is, a, there is a, a, a resurgence of that, especially on Instagram, mm-hmm. I'm seeing it, where, mm-hmm. by the way, it's happening in tandem with tattoo artists. So mm-hmm. what I'm seeing is a lot of camouflage-based reconstructions, right, where women are kind of like wearing their badge of honor, and they're getting some kind of like a, honestly, the tattoos are really nice. Some yeah. like, Shout out to
0: Inadano. Right, right. I'm saying they're getting
2: like some really nice, not just reconstructive tattoos, but artwork tattoos, and they're mm-hmm. embracing it. And- Listen, all power to them. I, I, whatever can get you through that battle and get you another bit healthy and cancer-free is the best, right? I, Absolutely. I, I, I don't think we as plastic surgeons should be pushing anything on people. We should be there holding their hands and giving them options.
1: I love this conversation because I feel like it really highlights all the different options that women have now. And that really didn't exist 20 years ago.
0: Um, some, you know, we, we polled the audience and asked for questions, and someone said, is it normal for a tissue explander to slosh around when they jump around?
2: Yeah, it, it is, especially when it's not fully filled. So, it, it, it's, it's a thin implant material with a lot of fluid in it. So, yes, like, so don't don't go, like, on a roller coaster, right? Because <laughs> it's, it's going to splash around too much. You're going to be like, you know, it can... Pop. No great adventure for you. No great adventure for you <laughs> wait, wait till your gummy bears come in. <laughs> exactly. <laughs>
0: Well, thank you so much for your time. I'm so happy we were able
2: to connect. It's my honor. It was such live. a pleasure. You guys, listen. You guys are like real doctors, right? I, I'm like a beautician. I just blow dry hair. You guys, I, you guys do the real deal. You guys actually save lives. You diagnose breast cancer. I think that's a huge, huge, amazing thing you guys do on a daily basis. God bless both of thank you. you. Thank you.
1: Thank you so you. much, and God bless you. Thank you. Until next time, let's Let's be Breasties.
0: If you like what you heard or learned something new, please make sure to leave us a five-star review and subscribe. I've literally always wanted to say that and share with your friends. Make sure you check back every two weeks for more great content. We've got some incredible guests coming up and you won't want to miss them. And follow the Booby Docs across all social media platforms for more of the breast information.